Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. When this pandemic of COVID-19 began, um, I was uh, experiencing the, the symptoms of the disease. And one of the things that it did was it, it gave me so much pain that I couldn't sleep for very long periods. And so I decided when I would get up at three or four in the morning, I would, I would spend my time in intercession and prayer, but also I would spend my time uh, studying God's Word. And as I was studying God's Word, I, I came across this, this passage in Ephesians where Paul talks about the blueprint that God has for fullness. And as I was, I was thinking through the, the crisis that began as a, uh, you know, a, a sickness that was hitting our land and closing down our nation and striking the whole world, then also we had on top of that the, the murder of George Floyd and, and other racial injustices that came to the forefront and began to realize that our world was in a, a state of, of, of real confusion and chaos and, and, and turbulence. And so it became even more important to me that, that we would talk together as a church about what's God's blueprint, even when we're going through uncertain times, times when the evil in the world is fully manifest, but also the times like with a sickness where you realize you're really not in control and, and there are often times where it feels like you're rather powerless. And so if God has a blueprint for fullness, it's also a blueprint that corresponds to times of crisis. And what I kept seeing over and over again is, is that when there is fullness, and if there is to be fullness, there is the manifestation or a visitation of the Holy Spirit where he does extraordinary work that produces extraordinary results. And this is what we see in, in Acts chapter 2. And we have there this pattern or a blueprint of a spirit-baptized church, not just of individuals who are baptized with the Holy Spirit, but the church baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what we see there in the blueprint, in the lines that are drawn, in the pattern that's revealed, is there are five elements. And it's not that one element and the others are missing. It's that all five elements are manifesting and are a part of the reality all at the same time. These are the things that that first century spirit-equipped, spirit-filled church manifested. There was a devotion to apostolic teaching and preaching. There was vibrant worship, both prayer, formal worship, informal worship, taking place daily. There was fellowship in that they were sharing each other's lives. They were opening up their own homes to one another. There was aggressive, not obnoxious, but there was aggressive and effective witness to where the Lord was adding every day to their number, those who were saved. And the, the fifth element, which is the one I want to focus on today, is that there was a there was a social compassion that took place, which resulted in a social healing. And if there's anything that we need to see today, now we need to see all five of this, these, but we need to see this fifth one. We're living in a time of crisis. We're, we're living in a time where, where people are feeling both angry enough and some are feeling safe enough to talk about the social woundings that they experience, and even for many of us to hear our friends talk about little to big indignities that they suffer every day because of the color of their skin or the culture that they come from. And so I want to look at all five of these, but I want to start with this one 
on social compassion of the work of the Holy Spirit to bring social healing just like he did in the church at Pentecost. So if we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit does, you got to remember that he is the Spirit of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, all that he is and all that he does is committed to doing exactly what Jesus did in his ministry here on earth. But his role is to indwell the believer with the same anointing that he anointed Jesus Christ with, and then to do the things that Jesus himself did. Jesus said, as the Father sends me, so I'm sending you. And so if we want to understand the essence of the social concern of the Spirit of Christ, we have to go back to the Gospels and look at how Jesus looked at the social issues of his day. And no better place to look at that than to look at it in terms of the Good Samaritan. Well, let's read this together. This is Luke chapter 10. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is speaking now. He says, And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, now we're talking about the lawyer again, he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the, the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Here's Jesus asking now the lawyer a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go. And do likewise. What a powerful story. So the story itself, the parable itself, has all of these amazing elements of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to care for the needs of others. But the story comes from a context of a religious person who was skilled in the law of God, believing that he could trap Jesus believing that he could catch Jesus in some sort of blasphemy or some sort of disobedience to the law or some dishonoring of the law. You see, the, this lawyer believed in his heart that he had the highest regard for the law. And so he believed he could trap Jesus because he was convinced that Jesus had a very low opinion of the law. He doesn't know he's speaking to the one who gave the law. And so instead of trapping Jesus, Jesus traps the lawyer. Now, it's really important you understand this, that throughout your life, you will see Jesus trap you. But when he is trapping you, just like with this lawyer, he's not doing it to make you look stupid. He's not doing it in order to embarrass you. He's doing it in order to reveal... One, his great love for you. Every trap he sets for you is a loving trap. But mainly it's about the fact that you and I have such a capacity for deception. 
just like this lawyer, to deceive ourselves. Now, Satan is called the deceiver, and certainly he works at it, but he has a lot to work with in terms of us. We are easily deceived. We easily believe things that are just not true. And here this lawyer had believed, one, Jesus did not have a high regard for the law, not knowing Jesus himself is the lawgiver. But number two, the lawyer was deceived and thinking he had a very high regard. No one had a higher regard for the law than this lawyer. And so Jesus sets a trap. Now, the, the purpose or the result that he's looking for here is he's trying to wake this person up. He's trying to arouse him to see that, that he doesn't know really the law and he doesn't really understand the law and that the law is actually condemning him even when he thinks he's using the law to condemn Jesus. So the question the lawyer asked, and again, it's a loaded question, but he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And you see the wisdom of Jesus. He knows this is a loaded question. He knows that this lawyer is looking for him to speak an answer that will, re that will reveal that Jesus has a low regard for the law. But what does Jesus do? He reveals his high regard for the law. He says, tell me, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Well, of course the lawyer has to answer this question. But notice how he answers this question. He answers the question with what is the summary of the whole law of God. It's the summary of the Ten Commandments. It's the summary of the first five books of the Bible. It's the summary of the requirement of God for human beings. You shall love the Lord your God. Not just with a little bit or a part of your life, but with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And then, flowing out of that, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He, he gave a perfect answer. He gave just the right answer. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. And then he, he, he lays this on this religious scholar upon this lawyer and he says do this and you will live now if if you'll allow the holy spirit to illuminate those words for a minute you'll see that jesus was giving this man a chance to be awakened he was giving this man a chance to answer correctly do this and you will live because what happens is the lawyer doesn't have the right answer. He doesn't look at this and say, wait a minute, I just said that what is required of me is impossible for me to fulfill. And as a matter of fact, the way that Jesus speaks this to him actually puts even more heat on the lawyer. So the lawyer tries, instead of being honest and broken and realizing his spiritual bankruptcy, what he does is he tries to kind of justify himself. Now that word is really, really powerful here. You can see, when you justify yourself, particularly when you're talking about justifying yourself before God, you're giving a basis by which God should accept you. You're giving a basis on which God should hear your prayers. You're giving a basis on which God should give you eternal life. And so he tries to justify himself, it says there. And what Jesus does, as this lawyer is trying to make a case for why he's accepted by God, what Jesus does is expose everything that this lawyer had built his life on. And what Jesus is talking about here is, what is it that the love of God requires of humans, of people. And so Jesus in this parable gives to the lawyer a model of compassion. You see, the, the way that the lawyer tried to justify himself was he tried to say, I believe that I can limit who my neighbor is. I believe that I can restrict what God is requiring to people that are just like me. I believe that I can restrict this commandment to love 
my neighbor as myself to only people who are of my own race. Only people who are of my own religious background. Only people who basically agree with me. And so, in justifying himself, he's trying to limit, in a sense, his responsibility so that he only has to love people who love him. Or only has to love people who look like him. Or only has to love people who believe like him. That's how he wants to define neighbor. He really wants to define neighbor as somebody he already loves without really having to in any way depend upon or rely upon the love of God or the unconditional love of God. And so what Jesus does is he blows up this lawyer's model. And Jesus exposes, in the story of the Good Samaritan, he exposes the model of the very compassion of God. See, in this parable, if you're a serious follower of Jesus Christ, then you realize what he's saying is that the essence of love that is revealed in this parable is what God requires when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God requires of every human being. That what Jesus is saying here is, because you see, he's tying it not, not to an optional aspect of life in God. He's tying it as life in God, that you love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the Good Samaritan parable is Jesus' example of what love is. Now, we're going to come back to the Good Samaritan, but I wanted to show you this, is, this pattern, this blueprint of love is throughout Jesus' teaching and then is picked up by the apostles as well. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33, Jesus is speaking again. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on His, on his right hand, but the goats on His left. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, say, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked in prison? Again, just think through this. Then he will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So when Jesus speaks and talks about good works, he is never saying that your good works will save you. He, he is basically saying that you don't make a dead tree alive by putting fruit on the tree. The fruit does not make the tree alive. But the fruit of the tree is the evidence of life. It's not the source of the life, but it is the evidence of life. You are justified by God and you're revealing that you are accepted and acceptable to God when you are compassionate toward those who are in different circumstances from yourself. Compassion toward the poor or the needy is the fruit of your justification. It's the fruit of your right standing with God. It's the fruit that you know that you're acceptable to God, that you've been fully accepted by God. This acceptance with God, this indwelling spirit of Christ, produces visible fruit in your life.
That's what Jesus is speaking of here. Now, there is somebody that many of you may not know, but having grown up in, in the teaching of the English Puritans, Scottish and English Presbyterians like I did, one of the, one of the amazing voices of that time of, of revival in, in, in Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, was a man by the name of Robert, Robert Murray McShane. He didn't live a long life, but he lived a passionate life for Jesus. And he has some of the most pointed declarations about what it is to be both full of the Holy Spirit and a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. And his words here are very pointed. He says, I fear there are some Christians among you to whom Christ cannot say, come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Your haughty dwelling arises in the midst of thousands who have scarce a fire to warm themselves and have but little clothing to keep out the biting frost. And yet you never darken their door. You heave a sigh, perhaps at a distance, but you do not visit them. I, my dear friends, I am concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you on the great day. You seem to be Christians, and yet you care not for his poor. Oh, what a change will pass upon you as you enter the gates of heaven. You will be saved, but that will be all. There will be no abundant entrance for you. He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. And I fear that there may be many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally. Not grudging at all requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout, throughout eternity. That's a pointed statement, isn't it? A young man fully devoted to Christ, preaching the gospel as a pastor of his church, and so concerned that none of Christ's compassion, none of Christ's viewpoint was actually a part of his church. Well, this is what Jesus is saying both in Matthew 25 and in Luke. He says, Jesus, basically Jesus can tell real faith from lip service by how you treat others. And the apostles, they understood this. They understood that this was one of the key manifestations of the fullness of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. In James chapter 2, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and, lack, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed, for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Look, this is incredibly convicting. I mean, if, you're, if you're not convicted, you're probably not listening. I, I look at this, and how many times have I been too busy when re someone really needed something, and so just to be spiritual, I said, well, I'll pray for you. That's what he's saying here. When he says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, it's basically saying, I won't do anything about your situation. I won't enter into your world, but I will give you a spiritual answer. The problem with that spiritual answer, James says, is there's nothing to warm them in it and there's nothing to fill their belly. And so James is saying, if when you see someone who is not warm enough and you won't give them clothes, if you see someone who's not eating enough and you won't give them to eat or to drink, then he says your faith is dead. Your faith is non-existent. That's a pretty strong thing. I'm trying to say to you that somehow in our epoch of Christianity, we have forgotten that this is not optional. This is a manifestation 
of the Holy Spirit in our midst where we in our abundance in Him are looking for ways to fill others' empty bellies and to warm their coldness and to warm them when, they're, when the winter is upon them. It's not optional. It's essential. He's, he's not the only one. In 1 John 3.18, he says, Dear children, this is the Apostle John, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In other words, speaking words of love will not carry the same weight as actions that are based in truth. So, please think through this with me as we think about the Good Samaritan. So what is Jesus doing here? Number one, he's revealing racial hatred. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. There was a racial divide. There was a historical racial divide that was hundreds of years old. Maybe you could say it was something around six, six, seven hundred years old or so. And both had incredible prejudice against one another. And so what's interesting in this story is, number one, you have to catch in the story that the one who is robbed and beaten and left for dead, who is destitute with no money whatsoever, is Jewish. Anybody listening to the story, anybody hearing the story, would have immediately known this man is a Jewish man. So he's, he's beaten, he's vulnerable, he's destitute, all of these things, and he's lying beside the road, unable to help himself. And so Jesus has the Samaritan be the one who helps. So here, and this is important you get, because in the, the mindset of the Jewish people of that day, they were the higher race. They were the superior race. They had the favor of God. They had the religion of God. They had pure blood. All of these kind of things. Whereas the Samaritans were a mixed race. They had a lower religion. They were not favored of God. They were only worthy of scorn and derision. They were despised. So who is it that shows up as a real person in this, but a Samaritan. And the one he's helping, the one who's helpless, is Jewish. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's making a really clear point that your neighbor is anyone who's in your path. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. This isn't about seeing somebody on the streets of New York City or wherever you might be and say, i got to give that person a dollar. I mean, it might not even be the best thing in the world to give that person a dollar. What Jesus is really saying, come on, this is somewhat deep, so you gotta, you got to catch this with me. Okay, what he's saying is most of us spend our whole life looking up above us to who's up the corporate ladder, to who has more possessions, who has more fame, who has more approval. We're looking for those that we are below so we can somehow, through envy and covetousness and drive and everything else, we can aspire to have what they have and be what they are. But what that does is because we're always looking up to others who we want to be, I want more money, I want a better job, I want a bigger house, I want a better car, I want all these things. Because we're always looking at that and saying, oh, they have what I don't have. We see ourselves in a way that Jesus says we shouldn't be seeing ourselves. But rather we should realize that wherever we are, we have incredible power to affect the lives of those who are on the same level as us and to affect the lives of those who in many ways have many more disadvantages than us. So Jesus is saying, stop looking at what you don't have and what others have and then using your covetousness in order to distract you from the real journey in this life. And he says, look at the power you do have and begin to use that power for good. I mean, think about this story. A priest and a Levite pass this by guy, this, this, this Jewish guy who's helpless and destitute, on the road, bleeding, they pass him by because he's less than they are. 
but the one who, who apparently religious-wise, culturally, racially, actually is less, stops. And he gets bloody with the guy. He puts him, you know, on his transportation. He takes his wounds into his own life and into his own body. He even pays. I mean, not only does he touch this hurting man and bring healing to this hurting man, but he takes his own money and he pays for the medicines for this man. He pays for lodging for this man. Now, this is a man on the road, destitute, but who despises him because of his culture and his race and his religion. I mean, do you not see how deep this is? Do you not see what Jesus... Jesus isn't calling you to be a nice guy or a nice girl. Jesus is saying, stop looking up at what you don't have. Recognize the power you do have and look around and see what is needed. What do I give? How do I help? How do I change things? Look at this Samaritan. He didn't have to do any of this. And yet, it cost him greatly. And yet he didn't hesitate for a second. Please hear me on this. I mean, this dynamic of social compassion, this dynamic of social healing, it can never be out of guilt. It doesn't matter if what's gone on has gone on for years and years and years. When you are truly being compassionate towards someone, it doesn't come out of fear. It doesn't come out of guilt. It doesn't come out of shame. It has to come out of love. This is why I'm saying to you that it can't be that your life is about what you don't have and the power you don't have. It has to be about who you are in Christ and the power and resources you have in Him. And then you start looking around like this Samaritan did, not like the priest did or the Levite did, but you start looking around and say, what can I use my power for to bring healing? You see, this Samaritan had no legal obligation he had no moral obligation. He actually had to cross over cultural and racial and religious boundaries just to help this guy. Why did he do it? Because he was filled with compassion. Do you understand? Compassion is the emotion that Jesus expressed more than any other. The word compassion in Greek is, for me, one of the most fascinating. Because it doesn't come from your stomach. It doesn't come from your heart. It comes from your intestines. It comes from your gut. So what Jesus would do when he saw the woundedness and the hurt and the pain of others, it would rise up and rumble in his gut. And he would have to act because not only did he love them, he wanted to heal them. Not only did he love them, but he wanted to set them free from the demons. Not only did he love them, but he wanted to feed them. 5,000, 4,000 of them. It didn't matter. His compassion rumbled inside of him and it was the emotion that he most expressed. <laughs> I hope you're tracking with me on this. Because this isn't an option. This is who the Holy Spirit is inside of every believer. He's rumbling inside of us. He's, he's <laughs> moving in our gut. I remember the first time I realized really how spiritually powerful this is. It was in 1997, I, I was invited to go on a, um, an evangelistic uh, campaign in Cali, Colombia. And in 97, Cali, Colombia was, was known as the drug capital of the world, and the cartel was coming down in Colombia. And it was a dangerous place. The pastor I stayed with did four funerals of people that were assassinated the week that I was there. It was uh, a very confusing and chaotic time in that city, but God was taking this kind of vulnerability and taking this kind of recognition among the people that they needed something more than what they had. And people were responding to the gospel and the Spirit was moving in such powerful ways. I remember it was a Thursday night. I went to the preach at this one church and, and as I was preaching, um, I, 
I was struggling with Spanish. I was, I was being allowed to, uh, to use a translator as I preached. And, and I, I remember thinking, this just doesn't feel all that powerful. You know, a translated sermon from English. Now, I know they can be, and, but I didn't feel it, is what I'm saying. And so after it was over, I was kind of disappointed, to tell you the truth. But the pastor of the church, and there were about 650 people there, and the pastor of the church came up to me and said, will you pray for our people? So suddenly something happened. I said yes. And I immediately felt something happened stirring inside of me from my innermost being to my mouth. And all of a sudden, I could speak Spanish I hadn't even learned how to speak. And I could speak and everything I needed to say in Spanish, and I could hear everything people were saying. That night, I prayed for hundreds of people individually. And what I began to experience was so much like what I'm telling you about the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan parable. I could see where they were broken. I could see where they were wounded. It was, there were many instantaneous physical healings because Jesus was there present to heal their, their, their physical needs. But so much more, friends, it was spiritual and emotional needs, and he was their healer in that way as well. He would, he would give me exactly what I needed to say as I pray, and praying in another language is one of the most difficult things, and he would give me exactly what I needed. And, and I would pray for these people, and they would be, immediately be delivered, immediately healed, or immediately set free. It was an amazing experience, but here's what, here's what I felt like I was in the middle of. The pain and the wounds of his people and the compassion of Jesus meeting in that moment with all the resources and all the power to make a difference. You see, the reality is Jesus is the only one who can heal the bankrupt, the spiritually broken, the ones the world has discarded, robbed and beaten and taken away their dignity. Only Jesus can restore. But if you and I will move in the spirit of Jesus... He will use us like the good Samaritans that we need to be, and it's not optional. That's the pattern. Again, I, I share with you, I know his words are tough, but I feel like the Lord wants to really convict us this week. This is Robert Murray McShane again. He says, now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be made branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like Him in giving. Though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor. The objection you might raise, McShane said, is, well, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forceth it from me. Then where should we have been? Objection. Well, the poor are undeserving. Christ might have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my Father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, He gave His blood for the undeserving. But the poor may abuse it. Christ might have said the same. Yea, with far greater truth, Christ knew that thousands would trample His blood under their feet. That most would despise it. That many would make an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Woo! What a word, huh? Well, maybe if you're still a cynic and you say to him, well, what about all the con artists and the rip-offs? Of course, friends, there are people to avoid. Of course, there are situations to avoid. That's wisdom. But when you're avoiding someone, is it just to protect yourself so you won't look foolish or be taken advantage of? Or is it because you're really thinking about that person 
and what's the best thing for that person. Uh, Lisa and I took our family to Costa Rica many, many years ago, back in 1986. We had never seen so many beggars on the street as in San Jose, Costa Rica. And we would go into the town on Saturdays, and we would go with our kids. And what I would do is I would take all the coins, which didn't amount to much money, really. A lot of coins didn't amount to much spending power. But I would take all of them that I had, and I would give it to my son, Joseph, who was at that time five years old. And Joseph would take his sack of coins to the town, and we would, we would buy some, something sweet or something special for him. And he would purchase it with the money that we gave him. But I remember this one Saturday, he saw a lady on the street with a little girl, and he looks at me and he said, Dad, I want to give her all my coins. And I remember thinking, son, you won't have anything left if you give her everything you have. And my son, with utter trust in me, and with complete lack of God, looks at me with the biggest smile on his face, and he said, but I know you always have more, Dad. You see, it can't be out of guilt. It can't be out of shame. It can't be out of obligation. Here was my little son who got the grace of God better than I did a lot of times. Because he said, if I give it all away, my father still has more. And he went and he gave her everything. And then Lisa and I felt so moved by that, we took her and we bought groceries for her and got some different things for her and her child. Because you see, What's true of you now is true of Christ if you are in Christ, if His Spirit is in you. And so there are three traits that are always true of Christ when Christ is in a believer. The first is compassion. The second is kindness. And the last is patience. Let me go through these quickly. Compassion, both compassion and kindness and patience are an embracing of your own vulnerability. So what it is, is a willingness to be vulnerable in such a way that you let another person into your world. You give them access to your resources, your power, your status. You let someone else in so that you are beginning to understand what they feel and they are understanding what you feel and now it's from the gut. You open up your world, you open up your heart, you open up your life to another. See, if you keep looking at those worlds that you envy or those worlds that you covet, you will never know the power of your own world and the power of, uh, of compassion to open up your life in a vulnerable way to let others in. And then kindness, you see, kindness is the vulnerability that allows you not to tell other people what to do, and how to get better and to fix them, but vulnerability to actually enter into their world and knowing what they actually need, you begin to share what you have so that those real needs are met and the person's life is changed. You see, it was both compassion and kindness that manifested after Pentecost. No one had any needs. Because everyone was sharing. Well, you, don't, you don't go from having needs to having no needs if you won't open up your life and say, here's where I have needs. And you don't have those needs met unless opening up your life and becoming vulnerable and entering into their world, then you share what you have even if it's sacrificial. So compassion and kindness come out of vulnerability. But the same is true of patience. Patience isn't just restraint. It's not simply just stuffing it or suppressing your anger or your worry. It's actually being at the place where in your vulnerability before God, you withhold judgment of other people. You withhold punishment, even if it's warranted in a circumstance. Why? Because patience is a type of mercy. And because you have been the object of God's mercy... And because by the mercy of God, you now are a child of God, 
then you will extend the same mercy you've received to those now that you're having relationship with. Compassion and kindness are the grace, are a type of grace. Because you have been given what you don't deserve, then you can give to others what they don't deserve. It takes a whole new category. It's not just justice, friends. It's grace. Justice is only getting what you do deserve and having you know, what you don't deserve not happen to you. But grace is so much bigger than that. Grace is that you receive the gifts and the needs and they're met in such a way even though you are undeserving. But you see, what I'm trying to say today is when the Holy Spirit awakens you and you realize who you are in Christ and begins to work in you and you stop resisting Him, compassion and kindness and patience are simply being what you really are. But it begins, you see, it begins back at the Gospel. It always begins at the Gospel. The Holy Spirit will only anoint the truth of the Gospel in our lives. Why is it that I can be so transformed by the Holy Spirit's work? Why is it that I can start to look at the people around me differently, the people who are in worse circumstances than me differently? Well, because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I have no righteousness of my own. See, any time that, anytime that you don't have compassion, any time you don't have kindness, any time you don't have patience, you're basically failing the test that the lawyer gave to Jesus. Because you see, if you try to put forth a righteousness of, of your own, then you have to be 100% compassionate, 100% kind, 100% patient all the time. Scripture says if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken it in all places. I know this might shock you a bit, but you know what? you know who Jesus was describing as the Jewish man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead and who was destitute? He was describing the lawyer. He was telling the lawyer who he was. That he was spiritually bankrupt. That he had been completely deceived by the father of lies, Satan himself. That he was, he was in bondage. He had no spiritual capital whatsoever. And that he would have to receive a righteousness which in his mind, if it, if it were like coming from a Samaritan, then it would have to be an alien righteousness. And that's what Jesus is saying. It, it's a righteousness that's foreign to you. But it has to become your righteousness by faith. You see, the, the way that the lawyer looked at things, he kept trying to limit the scope. Uh, my neighbor has to be smaller. has to be someone that I like, someone that I love. Because you see, when he looked at people who were greater than him, he was intimidated. When he looked at people who were less than him, he despised them. What I find with lots of people in the church, they look at things exactly like the lawyer did. They look at people who are greater than them and they covet and they envy and they want what they have and they will do almost anything to get it. And they look at people who are, in their minds, irresponsible, lazy, or they're their habits are different from theirs, and they despise them and say they're unworthy and they're undeserving. You see, if that's the way you look at people, then you don't belong to Christ. Because you're the lawyer, you're the man on the side of the road beaten up with no money and nothing but wounds and hurts. Spiritually bankrupt, emotionally bankrupt. That's who you are. And until we get this, that we are only accepted by God and only acceptable to God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, then we don't belong to God and we're not in right standing with God. And when you still look at people, you say, I despise that person, or you look at them and you're intimidated by that person, then you're not living out of who you are in Christ. This is not optional. So as we close this up, this... Very convicting teaching today. What this pattern, this blueprint of fullness is, is that you and I have to realize, now we'll look at the other four, but we have to realize all five have to be in place. Not out of obligation, not out of duty, but because you and I have begun to really understand 
that we are accepted by God on the basis of his righteousness. We are acceptable to God. We are absolutely loved by the Father. And then as that love of the Father fills us, then from our gut upward, we start to have capacity for all those who are in the same boat as us and all those who are more disadvantaged than us, but we look at everyone as having value, having worth, being worthy of the dignity of our acceptance and the dignity of our love. If this is not true of us, then we haven't really let the gospel penetrate all the way to our identity and then to our actions. Will you receive this today? Would you pray with me about this? Lord, this is, I'm convinced, this is biblical theological teaching on social compassion and on social healing. That the fruit of the gospel in the life of any person will result in a recognition that I have no record of righteousness of my own, that you were the one who found me on the side of the road, that I had nothing to commend myself to you, and yet you took my wounds upon yourself. By your blood I am healed. You took you know, my destitute position and you made me an heir of the very Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've made us joint heirs in yourself. When I look at that and still have so little capacity for loving the poor, the undeserving, the whatever title we want to call, I recognize I haven't let that gospel go down deep enough. I'm still looking to what I don't have and what I want to get instead of using what I do have and bringing transformation. Oh, Holy Spirit, will you anoint us today afresh to be people of compassion, of kindness, of patience, of grace and mercy. Only in that way can I see our world transformed, but in that way we get to see and experience the fullness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.